Hello and welcome to another episode of A Slice of Health, the Candid Health Chat podcast, where we slice away health truth from health fiction. Join me and my friends as we challenge common health myths via chit chat, powered by several cups of coffee. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on social media and do visit us at a sliceofhealth.club. Let's get to today's episode. On today's episode, we are joined by Tita Oye, blogger at Her Sickled Journey. She shares with us her story of living with sickle cell and encourages us on how to live well with sickle cell. She advocates for others living with the condition and encourages us to donate blood, which is so crucial to the treatment and management of those living with sickle cell disease. Sickle cell disease is the name of a group of inherited health conditions that affects the shape of red blood cells and is particularly common in people of African and Caribbean family background. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hello champions, welcome back to another episode and we are joined today by Tito. Hello Tito. Hiya. Hi, welcome to the episode. Thank you for having me. So tell us a bit about yourself. Um, so my name is Tito, I'm Nigerian. Well, my parents are Nigerian. I've been born, bred in the UK, um, London. I am 23. I am, what am I? I'm the eldest of three siblings two other siblings um and I have sickle cell anemia okay and tell us about her sickled journey so you started blogging and using social media to talk about about that yeah how did how did you come come about doing that um so I had the idea of doing a blog for a while um and it was while I was at uni my friends encouraged me to actually start um doing it because I think I had like my ideas on a whiteboard in my room and then they came to my house once I was like oh what's this I said, oh yeah, um, I just want to do a blog or something about my health just to let people know about it because then like barely anyone knew about my health. They, they may know me, but when it came to my health, they wouldn't really know much. Okay. Um, so they just encouraged me to do like, to set up my blog because it would actually help people. So I started that, I think that was 2017. Okay. Um, and yeah, so since then I've just been blogging and I've been sharing my, my experiences on social media. Um, and yeah, it's just been like a nice way to let people know what's going on and people who have sickle cell as well would like reach out to me and just um, ask me for advice or let me know that they're going through the same thing or just be like, oh, well done for talking so much about it because not many people are that confident to do so. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a great journey so far. So. Yeah, yeah. And what uni did you go to? Um, I went to De Montfort University in Leicester. Okay. Yeah. And when you started sort of blogging about it in 2017 did you ha- was there a community of other um people who were living with sickle cell at the time um not one that i was familiar with so i tried to reach out to different societies that i would like assume that they'd have more of a community yeah um but i couldn't really find one that i could really relate to or that they were actively doing things which i would be interested in Okay. Um, so that's kind of why that let me be the person that I would have wanted or um, give the advice or the information that I would have wanted to hear as well. So, okay. yeah. Okay. So um, tell us a bit more about um, your sickle cell journey. Um, how did you how did you find out that you had sickle cell um, and what's it been like? Yes. Yeah. No worries. So my parents knew that they were both carriers um, of the sickle cell trait. So when I was born, I was tested for it straight away. Um, and they saw that I did have um, sickle cell, the full-blown sickle cell, SS. 
Um, and from young, it's been okay. What I remember really is just like my parents always reminding me of Tito, go and drink water. Tito, it's too cold, wrap up warm, etc. And at the time, I just thought like they were nagging me, like it was, it was annoying um, because they didn't really explain to me what it was and more like from the perspective that they were trying to protect me. Um, so I think it was one time when I was in year five that whenever it was cold or raining outside, I wouldn't be allowed out to play. Mm. And I would normally ask one of my friends to stay indoors with me so that we can play together during our lunch break. Mm. And then I told one of my friends, oh, can you stay in with me? And she was like, oh, why? I said, because I have sickle cell. And she was like, what's that? And I was like, yeah, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, mm. My teacher overheard me. Mm. And then she was like, oh, yeah, it's when your um, cells are based, uh, they, they look like a crescent. So she mm. did like a C shape with her fingers. So when they're um, a crescent shape and they stick together really easily and things such as cold um, and fatigue or tiredness can make it stick together even more. Yeah. That's kind of like my first understanding of the condition. Yeah. Um, And then from there, I kind of just went to start doing my own research into like what exactly it is, how it would affect me. Yeah. Um, And I had appointments frequently, which again, at the time I never really questioned. I just knew that there was something different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think then eventually my knowledge just started to grow to the point where I was like, not many people talk about this or know about it. Um, even I didn't know about it the way I should have. So then I kind of took that responsibility on myself to make sure I knew everything I did need to know. Okay. And in terms of um, sort of through childhood and then talking to your friends about it and you also said that you know you um, when you were in university as well it was then your friends that also encouraged you to start blogging about it mm. did you ever feel um a stigma about talking talking about the fact that you were living with this condition um not really but I expected one okay so when they found out so I only started my blog in my last year of university um but I think when I first started university, my friends didn't know, maybe only a couple of friends who went to um, secondary school with me. Yeah. Um, so I remember one day, like they came to my house and then they saw like an appointment letter on my um, board. And they were like, oh, what's this? I was like, oh, I have sickle cell. So it wasn't a thing which I went and openly told them because I believe there would be a stigma. Yeah. Um, that's something that my parents kind of always, like, it was always like hush, hush, like, oh, only let people know if... Um, if they if they need to know um yeah. so yeah then eventually like when I started realizing that they would be treating me the same then I was like okay, there's not really a reason to hide this yeah um and if I start talking about it more then we can prevent um ultimately prevent people from having babies with sickle cell which is again one of the aims of it in general yeah. um but yeah I think the stigma I, I expected it but there wasn't one thankfully Okay. And you said something, you said that your parents sort of um, encouraged sort of a hush-hush behaviour yeah. about it. Um, is that something that you think that maybe our, the generation of our parents and the older generation in sort of African communities, do you think that there is a stigma in that generation about it? Definitely. Um, I definitely do think so. I think that someone would look at you completely differently, like you're less able um, even though technically, yes, you may not be as able to do certain things, but we are able to find ways around that mm-hmm. where certain people will just completely like write you off because they hear that you have a disability. Um, also with like that generation and like my mom, one of her reasons is that um, it was more like faith led in a sense where she was, she never kind of claimed it. 
So okay. she's the type of person where she's like, oh, what you like, what you confess is what you possess and stuff like that. Okay. Um, so she'd always be like, oh, when someone asks, just make sure you say that you're registered as a sickle cell patient as opposed to you actually having it. So yeah, so she was like one of those people just literally, she just didn't want to say, or she didn't, she didn't want me to claim it at all, basically. Mm. Um, and that kind of rubbed off on me in the sense where I was like, okay, no, I'm not allowed to tell anybody. Um, so maybe at, the, at that age, I didn't really understand um, what, like why her, she was so strict on that. Mm. Um, but I understand now that I'm older. Yeah. yeah. And when you started blogging about it then and talking about it openly, did you get any pushback at all from the African community or from family members? Um, not really. Like my parents were a bit hesitant. Yeah. When it came to like my blog, they didn't really think I was taking it that seriously, or they didn't really share it amongst their friends and stuff like that. Um, but I guess when they realised eventually that um, I am taking it seriously, and then when it comes to like speaking at different events and organizing blood drives and stuff like that they were like okay we need to get on board and just show our support I guess at, at first they they like they have their they have my best interests at heart like always yeah um so I understand that their hesitation wasn't out of like they didn't support not that they didn't support me sorry it's more of a thing where they just wanted to protect me um the best way they knew how to so I guess um the less people that know it the better in their view so that's kind of like why I understand the hesitation when it came to it at first yeah yeah and um just going back you said something about um trying to reduce you know um improve awareness and then trying to reduce the number of children that are then born with sickle cell um disease but at the beginning you said that both your parents knew that they were carriers yeah and did they did they both know before they got married or was it after they came together that they knew I think it was after they came together that they found out, um, which is what a lot of people, that's the situation that they find themselves in, mm-hmm. um, where it's not something that they make a priority to find out before or during the stage of um, getting to know each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, like, I feel like it's a cycle, it's a knock-on effect in the sense where if those of us with sickle cell don't really speak about it or let people know how serious it is, people who carry the trait won't understand the importance of going to find out their genotype. Yes. Um, and that's how they just continue to have babies with sickle cell. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they didn't know beforehand, but then they found out um, when they were already married. Okay. okay. And do you have any other siblings at all? No. Um, I, I have, um, one of my siblings are a carrier. Okay. Um, but no, none of them have the full blown and in what way did sickle cell affect your childhood other than you know not being able to play out outside because of the weather um, needing to wrap up you know being encouraged to make sure that you were staying well hydrated as well Mm. did it affect your schooling in any way um not when I was young when I was young um maybe like primary school age it would just be like the frequent hospital admissions um but besides that I think it was when I started to get to secondary school um, and college where I would have exams. Yeah. And stress for me is one of my biggest triggers of a biggest triggers of a crisis. Yeah. Um, so that's when I started to realize I had more flare ups and it kind of interrupt like it it hindered um, me when it came to revising. Mm-hmm. Um, even in university as well. That's when I had like probably the worst. Um, crises I, it kept, I kept on um, having, having to be 
admitted to hospital because mm-hmm. of the stress that I was under and again like that I needed so many like extensions from my um, coursework my dissertation and things like that my exams that were coming up it was a lot of stress um but I'd say yeah the only way that it has hindered me growing up was well the main way sorry um would be education wise okay and in terms of so you just you mentioned about stress being a major trigger for you mm. um, especially you know in secondary school and in university at all mm. have you found any other specific triggers that sort of trigger you into going into a crisis um yeah so when i'm dehydrated mm. um that's when when you're dehydrated your blood is a bit thicker anyway yeah. so then it struggles to move around your body um and then that will trigger that could um, increase the chances of having a crisis dehydration um when i'm cold that's another thing um so those are the main ones for me so stress dehydration and temperature temperature changes yeah um, and um because a lot of people don't really understand sickle cell disease mm-hmm. um so they hear about it and they understand that you know it's something relating to the blood and mm-hmm. certain people um, who are living with the condition have to be admitted into hospital mm-hmm. could you give our listeners a bit of an understanding of what a crisis feels like okay that's like that's always like such a difficult thing yeah. to explain especially because like but people um, who I've spoken to before like, with sickle cell would say it's like um, like a constant like stabbing pain or like hammering pain like in whatever area of the body. So it's literally, it can affect any area of the body where blood flows technically is just where blood can clot as well, where it can get stuck. Um, so let's say, for example, like I have, um, like my blood gets stuck in my leg or clot in my leg, then I will struggle to walk um, like the pain is just so intense and it's like so continuous as well. Like it's like, it's, it's, it's hard to explain. Um, but it's a thing where like, even when I'm having the worst crisis of my life, someone can mm. look at me and be like, oh, she looks perfectly fine. Mm. Um, but they wouldn't be able to see the effect that it has. Um, besides if, for example, I'm crying, that's the only thing that will be like, okay, there's something wrong. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like it, it's like a, it's, it's, it's painful. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone to be honest. Um, and yeah, it's, it's oh, what words do people say? Yeah, just like a constant, like throbbing, sharp pain. And it can be like in multiple places at once as well. Um, so yeah, that's how, I guess that's how I would describe it. Yeah. And, you know, um, as, as a doctor and um, practicing, you know, medicine in, in different sort of environments as yeah. well, I think sickle cell is, is one, especially in, in an environment, and correct me if I'm wrong, if your experience has been different, mm-hmm. I think in an environment sometimes where um, people don't understand it so well and they don't understand how much pain you're in, mm-hmm. especially because they can't see it physically with their eyes. So you've not, you know, maybe broken a bone, nothing, you know, no one's cut you, mm-hmm. but you're feeling so much pain because your blood is so thick and so shaped differently mm-hmm. that it's passing through you know, blood vessels the wrong way and, you know, there's ischemia to, you know, sometimes to your bones and to your muscles as well. And that is agonizing. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel maybe, or have you ever had reports from other people living with the condition that maybe they're not believed when they attend hospital or they're not giving the right kind of painkillers when, when they're reporting pain? Yeah. Um, that's one thing that um, a lot of us face 
regularly where we will go somewhere seeking help but they mm. wouldn't believe us or they wouldn't understand the level of care that we would need mm-hmm. um, because like I said before like we would physically look okay like yeah. nothing would be wrong like physically that like, we would seem fine um, so I feel like in so I, I live in London um, I feel like when I was in university um, in Leicester in the city I, I, I noticed that like the staff there because they weren't as familiar because there's not as many black people in Leicester yeah. they wouldn't be as familiar with um, people with sickle cell and how to deal with it so I found then it was harder for me to get, for example, stronger painkillers um, yeah. because they would just, I think one response I would always get would be like, oh, if your pain is that bad, you need to come into the hospital. Mm. Um, but sometimes it's a thing where I know how to manage my pain and they don't really want to believe it. So then again, there's a stigma um, of um, when it comes to opioid abuse, um, mm. we have pretty strong painkillers. So I use um codeine or dihydrocodeine and if it gets really bad i'll use like oral, oral morphine yes um that's one thing which they do not want to give me at all um but i find that other people would get that prescription really easily whereas i'd have to like beg for it um i remember the last time i got that prescription i had to ask like at least five different times um just to show them that i was serious um but yeah i, I hear a lot as well i'm part of quite a few forums um have people in America who would be um, sharing their experiences where they will literally be in a hospital bed for hours before someone will come and um, tend to them um, and I had a similar experience as well once when I was um, in the hospital in A&E for a while and the only painkiller they would give me was paracetamol and that didn't do anything I, I already used paracetamol before I called the ambulance and I was just that was just very very traumatic um but eventually i did get seen and i did get admitted um but yeah it is it is a bit um hard to convince someone especially when like because at that moment we're in so much pain there's such a high level of urgency for us to relieve that pain so you don't necessarily want to be like like you're not well i'm personally i'm not the calmest person (laughs) when i'm in pain i I really i need help i need it now and if you're not helping me then I don't really have the patience to deal with you in a sense. Like that's why, like I like when I like I always try and go with a friend if I'm going to the hospital, so they can kind of, they understand what's going on yeah. and they can speak to them and let them know like this is what's happening, this is what she needs, um, and then hopefully they just get to the the resolution sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. But yeah, a lot of people get it a lot worse, um, especially people who live further out um, from London where there's less experience um, of dealing with sickle cell. Definitely, and I, I definitely agree with that in terms of my experience. Um, mm-hmm. So I trained, I went to medical school up north in York. Um, mm-hmm. And so I can definitely, and I've sort of worked my way down in terms of after, after med school and sort of training as well. And you can definitely see sort of the disparities in terms of how many patients obviously are admitted with sickle cell. Mm. Um, crisis and how they're treated and how they have an understanding of it um, and I think there's also something there especially in the UK in terms of the perception of how black people perceive pain mm. um, and is that something that you've, you've encountered or anyone's spoken to you about in terms of is do, do you feel as though there's a thing of maybe your pain threshold should be higher or you're lying about your pain is that something that you've you've encountered or other people that you advocate for have encountered as well yeah yeah definitely um 
And that's one thing that I had the the misconception of as well. I assumed that um, because we go through so much in terms of like dealing with pain, that we would automatically have a high threshold. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I realized that things such as um, like, like for example, from young, I've been having like different injections, like for blood tests or vaccinations, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I would still like wince at the pain of a needle. Yeah. Um, so like, it's like just because we've experienced so much doesn't mean that we're less sensitive to it. Exactly. It could be just as intense every single time or even worse. Um, and then same with the doctors, they may be thinking, oh, you've already dealt with this before. And they might try and like reduce your um, your prescription in the sense of like how strong your medications are just because you have it so frequently. Mm. Um, but that's not the best, that's not always the best route to take. Um, so yeah, it is something that we have to deal with. And like, it's, it's a lot, there's so many um, things that we have to go through, which just isn't really fair. So there's a lot of like petitions that I see going around, people to sign. But besides that, I'm not entirely sure what we can do to have more of a say in terms of like um, the, the, the guidelines when it comes to looking after someone with sickle cell. Mm. And you said something about there have been quite a few petitions. Could you tell us a bit about these petitions as well? Yes, I think the last one I saw was um, about making prescriptions free for those people, for those of us with sickle cell. Yeah. Because um, I know that with the medication that I was on, it was called hydroxycarbamide. I had to get that every three months. Yeah. Um, and it's a medication that's also used to, um, that is used by some cancer patients as well. Yeah. Um, and it has a similar effect in terms of what it does in our bodies. Yeah. But we'd have to pay for it, whereas those cancer patients wouldn't have to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so I think maybe at the same time, like sickle cell isn't really recognized as a disability. Mm. Um, and we do still have to pay for our prescriptions like, as, as frequently as we need them, to be honest. Um, I know there are other reasons why people won't pay for it. Um, but that just as like a blanket rule, those of us with sickle cell do have to pay for our prescriptions. Um, so I've signed that I signed that petition a while ago. And I think the response again was that um, like the same old where like they already have their list of conditions that um, will be free, like exempt from paying, yeah. and the sickle cell wasn't one of them. And that eventually, whenever they do review it, then they'll see if um, that can be added to the to their list. Yeah, and it's quite interesting actually because that list has not been revised in quite a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, and so there are quite a lot of um, illnesses on that list. Mm. That, um, you know, it was just because of how well they understood it several years ago, mm. and it, it is a bit. You know, it, it's definitely it's definitely one that definitely needs to be revised. Um, mm. And so, yeah, hopefully, as that petition gets signed um, and numbers increase, then they should definitely add it on. Yeah, um, because obviously, sickle cell is not. Um, a disease that you know you've done anything to because a lot of those illnesses on that list are illnesses that people have been born with mm-hmm. as well and so they know that you're going to have a long a long life of needing medication of mm-hmm. needing care so it makes sense that you shouldn't have to pay for your prescription definitely sickle cell really ought to be on on that on that list as well mm-hmm. um and just going, sort of going back um, a little bit as well, um, mm. in terms of awareness and raising awareness about sickle cell, you said that um, a lot of people are not aware of their genotype. Mm. Um, 
And I, I don't know why that is, because in a lot of African communities back in Africa, mm. um, places like Nigeria, Ghana, Kenya, yeah. um, even, in, even in the Caribbean, so like Jamaica and the Bahamas, where um, I did a few, a few months on elective when I was in medical school, people are aware of what their genotype is. Mm. Um, right from you know right from their teenage years so much so that some churches and mosques will not allow them to get married if both of them are carriers oh wow yeah so a lot of those communities are actually very strict about it because Mm. perhaps also because the healthcare systems are not as um robust as what we have here Mm -hmm. but then also because obviously it is very endemic in those populations yeah but why do you think that in our communities here where most of our parents have migrated from those environments mm. so they did know that they talked about it then they did know that you know those kind of barriers were there mm. why do they don't talk about it to us here i i'm honestly i'm not entirely sure um it may just be a thing that like you said where they know that this country can deal with it better mm. has better resources so when it comes to health related concerns they're not as worried Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, they should still be as um, as concerned with it as they were before. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, I'm actually going to ask my parents like why their friends or even them as well they don't really talk to talk about it as much because um, that is very true. Um, for like as soon as yeah, yeah, she, I, I've I've rarely heard anyone else talk about it, um, and it is it needs to change definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then I think there's also maybe in African communities as well, we have a culture of silence when it comes to mm-hmm. illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't talk about things, um, we don't talk about fibroids, we don't mm-hmm. talk about cancer. Um, perhaps the only thing that we talk about is blood pressure. Yeah, literally, <laughs> because of the food. <laughs> so that's probably the only thing that we talk about. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's also because, oh, it's related to stress. And so we can blame it on someone else and say, oh, no, you know, you're stressing me out. My blood pressure mm-hmm. going up. Mm. Um, but in terms of a lot of other things, there's definitely a culture of silence. I had um, Aisha Weber on um, mm. weeks ago. She was talking about HPV. And she was definitely saying that there's a culture of silence in a lot of African communities. Mm-hmm. And that does then prevent us from talking about things and avoiding certain things that we might have been able to avoid if we had the information. Mm. But what would you say to people who feel that sickle cell um, disease or people living with sickle cell disease don't have a disability? I would say like it's it's definitely easier said because if you're not physically feeling the way that it can impact someone's life then it's not really up to you to then determine whether um, it, it can count as a disability or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were to look into it further you can see that physically um, our blood is different to a typical healthy um person's blood yeah. and that i guess i guess um i would just tell them to just do more research just to find out how that can as such a simple um change to the shape of our blood can affect our whole life um yeah. literally the quality of life changes completely um we need to be more cautious about everything to prevent the worst from happening um so yeah i, I would just let them know that it's it's definitely it's there's a significant difference and they should research it um before they then just go and assume that it doesn't affect us just because they see us looking okay yeah yeah 
And what encouragement would you give to someone who perhaps was seeking you out, maybe um, a, young, a young lady who was just recently diagnosed, maybe she's five or six, um, and she's trying to understand it. What would you say to her about living well with, living well with sickle cell disease? Um, one thing I would say is just that they need to make themselves a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many times where I would like make my health like second, like my second option. Like I wouldn't prioritize myself, and then I would suffer the consequences for that. Yeah. Um, and it was it would always be like an unnecessary occasions as well, and yeah. the consequences are far worse than whatever it was that I was trying to put first. Um, so I would always say like always put your health first um, don't don't feel limited by what what you're you don't don't feel limited by sickle cell um, a lot of people will perceive it to be something which is um, so bad and that that's it that your life is over that you're a victim of it now but there's still so much that you can do um, mm-hmm. and there's so many like ways around things so if for example you had an idea but you're like, oh no, my health won't let me do it. There's just, there, there are different ways to get the same solution. So never feel discouraged because of your health. It may be harder, but at the same time, it is something that we can overcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And something else in the um, African community and also I think Caribbeans as well, um, that we often struggle with and obviously is quite important when we're talking about sickle cell is blood donation. Mm. Um, a lot of us don't give blood mm. in our communities. Um, why do you think that is? Um, I think a lot of it can be cultural. Um, so a lot of people, I remember when I first talked to my parents, I was like, oh, what are they going to do with my blood? Who's doing this? Like, is it clean, etc." cetera? Um, so like, there's the initial like, the preconceptions, like, oh, what's going on? Um, but then after that, when you actually speak to them and then help them understand the procedure, um, then they're more open to it. So what I find is that because I I try and arrange um, for group blood donations as frequently as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I realize is that a lot of the people who I reach out to who are black, they just haven't heard of it before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that they don't want to do it or they don't want to help out. It's just that people aren't really talking to them about it and they don't really know that it's an option yeah um so that's one thing i found like literally all the people who have us like yeah um no no reason why i can't do it so they'd, they'd be more than happy to do so yes um so i think so like, even for example with me i didn't start getting people to give blood i didn't even understand it until one of my friends was like oh yeah he wants to give blood so i was like okay yeah um then i started to understand more that okay this actually does help a lot of people with sickle yeah. cell yeah. And then I, then I started to educate those around me about it and then arrange for these group donation sessions. Um, so I, I honestly think it's a lack of, lack of knowledge um, because we, we love each other. Like we don't want, we want to be our brother or sister's keeper. Yeah. Um, so if someone needs help, we will help them. Like fair enough at first, it may be, it may seem daunting, but once they understand the facts and the, the procedure, then there's no reason for us not to help each other. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, what would you say to people who don't understand the importance of blood donation in sickle cell disease? Um, I would just, again, like, I guess I would use myself as an example. So I have blood donations every four weeks. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a thing where with 
black people because a lot of them will be like oh people are already donating blood um but it's a thing where you're like the person who's receiving blood their body can reject it if it's not similar to their own um and black people are more common they're more likely to have um a certain sub a subgroup um which is the ro subgroup so basically the aim is just for us to get blood as closely matched to us as possible so our body can accept it Um, and that's the thing like in in the uk um currently it's less than one percent of people who donate are black Mm. um so there is a need for black blood donors to for that number to increase um because there are so and like blood transfusions are an increasingly like it's it's a more common method um, when it comes to treating sickle cell Mm -hmm. so like as opposed to using medicine which i did before this is just like completely swapping out the, the bad blood in a sense to with um, blood that is less likely to sickle, yeah. um, to clot. So yeah, it is something that is really beneficial for those of us with sickle cell and something that has really helped me as well. Um, and I haven't had a crisis in a while um, and I, I've, I've really noticed the difference it's had on my life and I, and I feel like it's just something that's been, that is such a blessing for me and I'm so thankful for the people who do donate and do donate regularly yeah. as well. Um, that's one fear of mine that, oh, that people are just, that it's not going to be enough blood for me. Like then what? Um, yeah. And I'll physically literally have to like beg people that I know and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's literally, it's, it's needed. Um, that's something I always say, like it is needed and I am very thankful and, and we do need more. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, we definitely need to raise awareness about, it, especially in our communities, mm. um, for us to for us to donate donate more blood. That mm. is awesome. And um, just before we leave, if you just give us a championship point, just for some something for people to remember about the realities of sickle cell disease. Um, like it's it's not nice. Basically, like it's a thing which if we can prevent it then let's do that by all means necessary. Um, so that, that's just involving you finding out your genotype as soon as possible mm-hmm. and then acting upon it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's what I would say. Okay. And if, let's say hypothetically, mm-hmm. you were to counsel a couple that just got engaged, mm-hmm. um, both of them don't know their genotype, Mm. and then they go to their GP let's say they've listened to the podcast they go to their GP their GP arranges the blood test and both of them are carriers mm. and they both still want to go ahead um, to get married and have children what what would you say to them um so I would let them know because a lot of people are in that situation where they find out when they've already um have their arrangements to get married yeah. um one thing I would just make sure that they're making their informed decision giving them all the information that they need in relation to sickle cell, what the care would be like for a child with sickle cell, mm-hmm. their options. So for example, um, we came to like um, IVF and things like that to try and avoid it, if anything. Okay. Um, but some people would still proceed and just letting them know that if they were to give birth to a child with sickle cell, this is what's going to be required from them. Um, but yeah, and then just making sure that their babies get tested as soon as possible as well. Because a lot of people, um, they're not tested from birth, and when you're younger as well, you don't really have that many. Um, they're not that many signs that you have sickle cell until you start getting older. Then you start having like crises and stuff like that. 
Um, so yeah, just making sure that they're as informed as possible and that they know what they're doing. Going ahead. That is great. That is absolutely awesome. Thank you so much, Tito, for coming on. Oh, thank you. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, that's great. Thank you for joining us on today's episode. Do share this podcast with two people who have not heard about us before. Remember that this podcast in no way replaces advice from your own doctor or physician. Do subscribe and follow us on social media. Leave us a review on iTunes so that others can access the amazing content. And do join the club at a sliceofhealth.club and drop us some suggestions or questions that you might have. Don't forget to be a health champion wherever you go by separating health fact from health fiction. Thank you.